Hello and welcome to Charm City Checkup, a podcast about social justice issues in the city of Baltimore for pediatric residents, made by a pediatric resident. My name is Caroline Knoop and I'm your host. Currently, I am a second year pediatric resident in the city of Baltimore. I'm learning about community resources, social justice issues, and social determinants of health that face our patients and their families. Join me as I learn about all things social justice in the city of Baltimore. Welcome to another episode of Charm City Checkup. On this episode, we will be discussing trauma-informed care. I'll begin with an introduction to the topic and its relevance to pediatrics, and then I talked with Dr. Sarah Edwards, a child psychiatrist at the University of Maryland and an expert in the field. When practicing trauma-informed care, we emphasize the necessity for healthcare teams and organizations to have a complete understanding of a patient's past and present life situation in order to provide effective health services oriented towards their healing. To be most effective, trauma-informed care should be adopted at the clinical and a larger organizational level. Trauma-informed care seeks to realize the widespread impact of trauma and understand paths for recovery. It also recognizes signs and symptoms of trauma in our patients and their families, as well as staff members. It also aims to integrate knowledge about trauma into policies, procedures, and practices and actively avoid re-traumatization. The principles that govern trauma-informed care are safety, both physical and psychological, as well as trustworthiness and transparency with both the patient and the provider. It also aims to be collaborative between the healthcare team members and the patient with an emphasis on shared decision-making. It also aims to empower both patients and providers. There should be a belief in patient resilience and ability to heal from trauma with the necessary supports. It also focuses on humility and responsiveness, with a continuous recognition of biases and stereotypes, as well as historical trauma and their effect on patients. Practicing trauma-informed care has benefits to both patients and providers. From the patient perspective, when healthcare teams practice trauma-informed care, it can help establish more healthy, trusting, and open relationships. With this increased trust, we can see improvements in patient engagement, treatment adherence, and overall health outcomes. From the provider perspective, practicing trauma-informed care can lessen burnout and improve provider and staff wellness. Trauma-informed care also reduces avoidable care and excess costs for both the healthcare and social service sectors. Now, join me as I talk to Dr. Sarah Edwards about her experiences with trauma-informed care and how we can apply this to our daily practice as pediatric providers. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Edwards. Um, You're going to talk to me a little bit about trauma-informed care and uh, how it relates to our pediatric patients. Um, So I'll just start off with what is your role and what is your experience with trauma-informed care? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this important topic. Um, Well, my role here at University of Maryland is I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I'm associate professor for the Division of Psychiatry as well as Pediatrics. Specifically, I work with kids in all different areas and levels of care. So I cover the inpatient unit, I see young children in our outpatient clinic, and I supervise residents in our trauma clinic, as well as provide a lot of teaching to pediatric residents, psychiatry residents, and child and adolescent psychiatry fellows. 
That's awesome. So you have definitely a lot of experience with this topic. I do. It's hard to live in Baltimore City and not have a lot of experience with trauma. Definitely. And even with all of our patients, it's something to keep in mind. Um, have you noticed particular patient interactions that you can think of or how you um, incorporate trauma-informed care into your practice? Uh, definitely. So I'll start with a little bit of a history from our service line, which was uh, about 10 years ago, we incorporated a trauma-informed framework across our entire service line. It started on the inpatient unit, and that framework is called ARC, which is Attachment Regulation and Competency. And then we also trained and had this framework in our outpatient clinics as well as our school mental health program. So it was nice to have a universal framework in which all of our providers and therapists and psychiatrists uh, used to treat our children. Um, so, you know, trauma-informed care really moves away from trying to say what's wrong with you to asking, being curious about what could have happened to you. Mm -hmm. And we just recognize that trauma is so pervasive in everyone's lives that it's really important that we recognize that impact and assume that most people do have a history of trauma. Um, and then also recognizing the impact that it has on their physical health, emotional health, um, and just overall psychological well-being. Yeah, that's really important and kind of giving you a, um, a more holistic view of the patient as well. Definitely. Uh, you're not just judging the book by its cover, mm -hmm. you're really stopping to think about what else might has this have this person, uh, family, child, whoever's in front of you experienced. Definitely. And what would you say, you know, this is important for all patient populations for sure, um, but why is this approach particularly mm -hmm. important in your pediatric population? Again, since we're in Baltimore City, I'd say probably 95% of the youth that we interact with have had some sort of traumatic experience. Most people have had more than one uh, traumatic event. And so many of our kids have what we call chronic traumatic stress. So mm -hmm. that's they live in unsafe neighborhoods, might be a victim themselves of physical or sexual abuse and then have layers of intergenerational trauma and racial trauma on top of that. So it's so, such an important framework and way to interact and to treat children because it's so prevalent and we need to be sensitive and not to re-traumatize individuals when they're with us and in our care. Uh, a, really a trauma-informed framework or system of care creates that culture of safety and respect. And then that's how patients will get better. If they feel safe and allow us to help empower them, then they'll be able to build resilience and coping skills by appropriately acknowledging what needs they have and their goals uh, to, and their goals of treatment. Definitely. And as you're talking about that too, I wonder how you remind yourself kind of on a daily basis to keep all of this in mind, because I know, as physicians, um, we kind of can have really busy days um, and it can get crazy. And it seems like sometimes we just kind of get the job done, right? And do what might be the fastest way possible. Um, are there any particular tips or tricks that you have to keep all of this in mind when we're treating patients? 
One of the main principles of our ARC framework is what we call caregiver self-regulation. So it's really taking a moment before you interact with a patient to see what's your pulse? Where's your energy level? To, to just take two seconds before you open that door and give yourself a moment of self-reflection, take a deep breath, make sure that you walk into that next patient interaction so that you're fully present. So mm -hmm. I practice a lot of that. I, I typically uh, do remind myself before I knock on a door and see the next patient or bring somebody back to the office. I, I do take that moment to reflect. Um, so that's been really helpful for me, uh, particularly in my practice. And then on the inpatient units when uh, no matter if you're on the peds floor or on the inpatient child psychiatry unit, sometimes there are big events that happen that be, can be pretty scary. You might have an agitated patient or a family member. And again, you wanna take a moment and really take a deep breath and talk yourself through it before you uh, involve yourself in that situation so that you are in the right framework to be present and helpful. And I, I think that's the most important thing. I also try, and one of my great mentors when I was in medical school said this to me, every day you have the privilege to be working with families and patients, and you want to remember this is somebody's family. So if this was your daughter, this was your son, grandfather, how would you want them to be treated? And so I, that little voice is always in the back of my head as well. So I think that helps to kind of remember that yes, we're busy and yes, I would want my family member to be given that extra few moments from the doctor. Definitely. I think I like that checking your pulse before you go in um, and just figuring out where you are. We talk a lot on the peds floor about checking our biases. Um, mm -hmm. And this seems kind of similar to that as well. Definitely. Yeah, that, that's great. I like that, that framework. And that's so important for us to remember because we all have unconscious biases and we have to be aware of them and do better. Yeah, definitely. It does take an extra second, but I think overall improves patient care, obviously. Yes. Um, and then, you know, you kind of alluded to difficult situations that might require de-escalation. It seems like in the last um, few years, this has been even increasing on the pediatric floor. Um, and we've been dealing with it a lot um, on our inpatient unit. Um, besides calling for help, we call a BERT, you know, we get security, we get a chaplain, we get um, a psychiatry NP or fellow, which is always super helpful. Um, what techniques would you recommend for de-escalation of a patient or family situation that we can do while we're waiting for those people to come help us? Sure. So number one, take your own pulse, like mm -hmm. you said, that's really important. And then you really need to assess what is the etiology of the agitation um, so taking that moment to figure out, observe, see what's going on. And, you know, if you have the chance to get the collateral information, maybe the nurse is telling you what they saw or better understands the situation. And then putting together, you know, put your little detective thinking cap on and, and try to answer, you know, why is this happening? Why now? Why here? And then that'll help us determine how to respond to it. Mm -hmm. So you want to go into a situation being calm and collected yourself because um, high emotion, tense situations, they really need, they call for us to be calm and collected. And that can be hard. We're all human. We all have our own reactions and histories. So you want to take that moment before you bring that to the situation, but then figure out what's causing the agitation. Because sometimes it's as simple as 
Are they hungry? Are they thirsty? They're disappointed because they didn't get the phone call or the phone call was dropped. Mm -hmm. Frequently, we can figure out once you get the cause of the agitation, we can really work on solving it. And using the verbal de-escalation skills is so important. Definitely. Can you talk a little bit more about verbal de-escalation? Are you talking about speaking to the patient like in a calm manner? Any other things that you think about when you're doing that? Yes. So really respecting the personal space of someone. You don't want to get up too close or make them uncomfortable. Um, You want to, you know, don't want to raise your own voice. You want to be respectful and keep your voice in a kind of control and measured way. Um, It's important to be concise and to speak in very short sentences. When we're in these situations, um, our fight or flight response is kicking in and the patient's or whoever's agitated's fight or flight response is kicking in. And that's just all primal brain happening. And when we start using our prefrontal cortex to hear lots of verbal, it doesn't help. So you just want to speak in very short sentences and then listen very closely to what they're saying. You want to identify you know, what they're communicating, what their wants are and feelings are. And then we're going to try to accommodate reasonable requests. Um, sometimes you can't. And so sometimes it's about, you know, you can offer choices. Mm-hmm. And you also always want to kind of offer that hope and optimism as well. It's like, it's disappointing right now. And I know we can get through this and it's going to get better. Um, Sometimes you do have to to say things about like, well, let's agree to disagree. I understand. I hear what you're saying um, without kind of giving those negative statements, because sometimes that can also intensify the escalation. With these stressful events that we do um, experience sometimes on a daily basis, um, do you and your staff debrief after things that have caused distress? I know we talk a lot about NPEDS um, debriefing after poor patient outcome, whether that be morbidity or or mortality. Um, But these kinds of emotional events and difficult patient encounters can also cause distress um, to staff members. Mm -hmm. We do. So after each event on the inpatient unit, there's a debrief. Uh, We talk about what happened. What do we think led up to it? What did we do well? What can we work on? And then we also provide space to talk about the emotional aspects of what we've all been experiencing. Sometimes people aren't ready to talk at that emotional level right after an event. So twice a week, our psychology team members provide um, protected time for any staff member to come and they talk about what's been going on and talk about the different challenges. Because the work we do is hard and Mm -hmm. it can be really stressful. We see a lot of um, difficult things. We hear a lot of traumatic stories. You hear it on pediatrics as well. I mean, you might not be treating somebody's trauma, but you still hear the significant traumatic events these kids live with and the situations that they come from. And that can be, take its toll. So we do provide that space. And then I encourage everyone to utilize EAP resources. If you need to have somebody to talk to, um, there's also a RISE program here that is, uh, there's a pager number you call, I think it's 24 seven. And so after any sort of difficult, challenging patient event, somebody is able to hear your concerns and provides immediate support. So those are important um, things to remember as well. 
thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Edwards, and talking about um, these really important topics and reminding us about checking our pulse emotionally as well um, before going into um, a heated uh, patient situation and really any patient um, interaction that we have. You're welcome. This was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Um, this is exciting that you're doing your podcast and I do want to give you a nice little shout out for that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Charm City Checkup, a podcast about social justice issues in the city of Baltimore for pediatric residents made by a pediatric resident. Special thanks to medical students Juliana Solomon and Jessica Carullo for their contributions. Please follow us on Instagram at Charm City Checkup and feel free to reach out with any questions or episode ideas by emailing charmcitycheckup at gmail.com. Please remember that all opinions expressed on the podcast are mine and not necessarily shared by my employer. Bye.